0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Santa Monica, California, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Santa Monica, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Santa Monica. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good afternoon and welcome, everyone. I am your host, James Orr, and I have a very special class for you today. This is a class where I get to introduce you to a brand new spreadsheet I've been making. Um, I made a version of this not in Excel. I made a version of it as like an infographic in um, PowerPoint. Oh, probably six months ago or so. And I finally got around to converting it to Excel, making some small modifications to it, and I am continuing to work on it. I'll give you a link to download uh, the spreadsheet so that you guys can use it as well. But we're going to talk today about ways to speed up achieving financial independence. And I'm going to walk you through some of the thinking tools I have and some of the visual aids I have for figuring out how to improve the speed, how long it takes you to become financially independent using whatever resources you have. So if you were normally on a path to get there in X number of years, the idea is how can we shorten that for you and get you there faster? And we'll talk about some things related to that, like increasing risk by improving speed, because sometimes it's a trade-off. And while I was preparing this class, I actually thought of a, oh, a separate series of classes I'm going to do. Um, I probably will do the the first one in that series, sort of like an intro to this topic, tomorrow because I, uh, I was like starting to add some slides, think about how I was going to do it. And I ultimately ended up saying, OK, you know, this is really its own presentation because I'm going off on this really deep, very interesting, but very deep rabbit hole. Um, and so I'll get to that probably tomorrow, if not tomorrow, then soon. Um, and I will share with you some of my other thoughts on some other really cool new tools I'm making for that as well. But today we're going to talk about ways to speed up achieving financial independence, a new tool I created with this other spreadsheet. And we'll uh, kind of jump right into it. So let's get into it right now. So first, what is financial independence? Financial independence is when you can, in quotes, safely live off of your investments. And when I give you that definition, you're like, okay, yeah, that seems reasonable to me. You're financially independent when you don't have to work anymore and you can safely live off of your investments, the investments that you have there. And yeah, that makes sense. But it doesn't really make sense because that is more of a generalized definition of like what it means to be financially independent. And it's not a mathematical definition of, When are you financially independent? What is the math behind becoming exactly financially independent? So what I did is I came up with the math version of what is financial independence. And really what it is, it's when all of these things contribute enough money so that they cover your expenses or your desired amount of money that you want coming in. So financial independence is really when one. The net positive cash flow from all of your rental properties, that's all the income from your rental properties, rent, and anything else you're collecting on the property, minus all of your expenses, including vacancy, the principal and interest part of your mortgage payment, taxes on your property, any private mortgage insurance payments payments you're making, especially if you bought a property as a nomad or a house hacker, any insurance payments you've got on that, any of the maintenance you need in order to maintain the property and property management. So once you take all the income, you subtract out all those expenses, what's left over is your net positive cash flow from rental properties. And because I'm going to be talking about something else, they don't usually add this to this definition of financial dependence, but because I'm going to show you it on another spreadsheet that I made, I will also tell you that this is also the section for business income. So if you have a business that is not relying on you to work there, you are a passive owner in the business and you're getting passive income coming in from that net of all expenses, that's also what... Is included in this number one section. This number one section really should be included, should say business income. And real estate rentals just happen to be a business that we talk a lot about. And so I made it its own special category. But really, this is all your business income here net positive cash flow from business income, including net positive cash flow from rental properties. And the rental property one includes all your income minus all your expenses, including vacancy principal, so on and so forth, which I already covered. So number one, net positive cash flow from rentals and also business income. Number two, is any invested assets you have? If you have money invested in stocks or bonds or you know anything else like that, um, any money you have there times a safe withdrawal rate, which we'll get into what a safe withdrawal rate here is a little bit later. But times your safe withdrawal rate is money that can contribute towards you being financially dependent. So if you have a million dollars invested and you believe in the four percent safe withdrawal rate, which I'll get to in a second here, um, that is forty thousand dollars a year that you can then use to be considered financially independent. That contributes to the income to see if you qualify as being financially independent there. okay. So that's number two. Number one was uh, income from rental properties and and any other business. Number two is invested assets, time-safe withdrawal rate. Number three is any passive income you have coming in from social security. Now, if you're trying to do this financial independence thing way before you can collect social security, You won't be able to rely on that until much later. But some of you are listening to this. You're like, hey, look, I'm going to collect Social Security in five years or I'm already collecting Social Security. And so you can count that as part of the passive income that you've got coming in as to whether or not you are financially independent. So passive income from Social Security. Similarly, if you bought any annuities and you're able to collect on those annuities now, if you're getting any like monthly or yearly proceeds from your annuities, those can count towards you being financially independent. And then number five is passive income from pensions. So if you have a pension and or Social Security, then you can actually count the income you have a pension, income from your pension as part of being financially independent. So those are really the five areas of income we're counting. And if the sum of all five of those exceeds the amount of money you need to live on or the amount of money that you desire to have coming in, maybe it's not necessarily just live on, maybe it's live on plus, you still wanna continue saving for something, then you can count whatever money, if that exceeds the amount of money you need, then you are considered financially dependent. That is a more mathematical definition, more than just when you can safely live off your investments, right? We wanna know more about like when dollar amount wise, we actually are financially dependent, not just like in this generic sense. And so that's why we define it that way. So how do we speed that up? How do we get there faster? I'm gonna knock out the three kind of like really easy ones right up front, pensions, annuities, and social security. And then we'll dig into all the other details, but I wanna just get these out of the way. So pensions you want to speed up your pension, just make sure that we maximize how much we're contributing to have to any pensions that we have with our job. So don't like skip on the pension part of it. Don't say I'm not going to contribute to that. And I'm going to cover some caveats here because sometimes choosing to invest in your pension at a lower yield, the lower return that you're getting on that is actually a mistake. Um, and, and you could look at it as, look, if my pension's only earning me, whatever it is, you know, um, like when I think about like how much I'm putting in and what I'm actually going to get out when I'm able to collect, collect some new pension. And I calculate that to be about you know 8 to 10 percent or whatever it ends up being. And you can go invest your money somewhere else and get a 15, 20, 25 percent return and maybe even get it earlier than when your pension would start. Then maybe you don't want to fully fund your pension. Maybe you want to choose to opt out if you can at your job and not do that. Now realize, sometimes we go and we're like, hey, look, I'm not gonna do the pension because I think I can get these higher returns, but then something happens where those higher returns don't actually come to fruition, where they don't actually appear. You thought you were gonna rely on all this real estate stuff and the real estate stuff didn't work out for whatever reason. Now you don't have a pension because you stopped doing that. So you gotta be careful that you're not trading off some speed with increased risk and then end up having, regretting it later because you didn't do some stuff that was sort of like your baseline safety net sort of stuff later, okay? So pensions, that's number one. Annuities, we can buy you know, single premium immediate annuities or you could do like you know, annuity payments over time and do that. If we have the cash and if you want to do the single premium one, if that's going to get you over the edge, like let's say you've got, I don't know, whatever it is, $8,000 in uh, money coming in from all of your other assets and you're like, look, I'm about $2,000 short to having the $10,000 a month that I really need and I have this big lump, of, lump sum of cash sitting over here that I'm not doing much with. I could take that lump sum of cash, buy an annuity, convert that to some type of monthly or yearly income and actually get myself over the hump of being financially independent by taking assets, cash assets, and deciding to buy an annuity with that. And if the return is good enough from those, you can choose to do that. That may be a way to speed things up. You know, if you're unable to find another investment that's going to give you the cash flow you need, maybe the annuities would exceed your whatever you want to use for your safe withdrawal rate, your 4% safe withdrawal rate or 3% safe withdrawal rate. Your annuities, especially if you're older, could be higher than that, and so you may choose to do that in order to get you where you need to be, as a possibility. And finally, of the ones that we're going through really fast, Social Security. Make sure that if you are contributing to Social Security, that you are doing it and uh, that you're going to be able to do that. Now, in some cases, you have some choice as to how much you earn or how much you contribute to Social Security. And I'll give you an example. It's not like for just employees. This is for like if you own a business. And you're making a certain amount of money in your business, and you can decide how much of the income you want from your business to show up as wages, how much to pay yourself as a a reasonable wage for the job that you're doing, versus taking money out of the business as profit. Because with the ones where you're paying wages on it, you're usually having to pay a Social Security payment associated with that. The ones where you're taking as profit, you usually don't have to pay Social Security payment, at least that's my understanding. I'm not a tax expert. But well, you could choose to take a certain amount as wages and pay the Social Security versus taking more money as profit. So you could decide within a reasonable degree. You can't say, I'm taking no wages. I'm going to put all my money in profit. I think you'd get challenged from the IRS in that. Um, and so you could decide to take how much you're going to take in wages as to how much you're contributing to Social Security. And if you wanted to, you could choose to maximize the Social Security benefit so that you get the most out of Social Security later on when you're able to collect on it. And you'd want to go do that math and see what makes sense for you in your particular situation. So. Be careful, though, that you don't deliberately minimize or avoid paying Social Security and then regret it later. Similarly, what we talked about um, with the pension discussion as well. Okay, so how do we speed up those pensions to do any Social Security? Really, it's just about contributing to those and making sure we're doing it. Okay, And I did mention this while we were talking about that, but I just wanted to point it out to you that the returns you're earning on pensions and annuities and social security might be lower than what you think you can get or what you actually can get in these other investments outside of those options as well so while we may or may not be a while there may or may not be a somewhat reliable source of money returns later focusing on the pensions, annuities, social security, they may not be high enough to improve your speed. And so you may choose not to invest in those or you may choose to reduce your investment in those or do sort of like a hybrid where you're only investing a certain amount and then you're taking the the larger proceeds of your money and you're investing it somewhere else. And we'll talk about that. So here's the new spreadsheet that I hinted at. I call it my financial independence, asset allocation and cash flows engine. And really what it's about, it's about thinking about Financial independence for you and how you're determining where you're investing your assets, and specifically how the cash flow engine works. Where the money you're earning from your job and all your other investments, where are you taking that money that you're earning from those? And then where are you bringing it all the way back around to the front of the engine and putting it in as fuel for your investments to grow even more? And then you're getting more out on the other end, and then you're keeping going around and around, and you have this like engine, this cash flow engine where you get. Investments, you buy the investments, you then get the investments to earn some type of return, you get money thrown off from those investments and you take that money and you bring it back around to the beginning. And so this is a visual tool to help you understand where you're earning your money, where it's all coming from, what are the sources of all of it? um, And then what are you doing with that money once it comes out of the cash flow engine? What are you deciding to reinvest in? And if we know approximately what the returns are for different kind of like, I don't know, buckets, they're kind of like uh, the uh, dotted lines around dirt in certain areas, Do you know the returns you're earning from certain ones? We can choose to say, okay, I'm going to take the money I'm getting from these three or four or five sources, and I'm going to put them back in into source number four or source number six or source number eight or source number nine. And we can visually do that so you can understand it. This is a brand new spreadsheet. I'm sure there are errors in it because I just released it. I just made it and I've not tested it. It's not been brought out into the public. It's not been shared with anybody. And so you're welcome to go download it, but realize uh, depending on when you're listening to this, I'm recording this, I don't even have my watch out. Uh, October twenty fourth, twenty fifth, something like that, uh, twenty twenty three. And so, if you're if you're going to watch this and you're relatively close to that date, realize it's going to be new. Um, and the longer we get out from under it, probably longer we get away from my release date, the more likely I'll fix some of the errors and we'll do that. Not saying that you won't find any, but there you go. So, if you want to go download it, go to rep. dot info forward slash f i a a c f e, and that stands for Financial Independence Asset Allocation. Cash flow engine. So REFP.info F I A A C F E. And you can go download a copy of the spreadsheet and you can kind of use it, do your own numbers on it, do that. But let me walk you through some of the ideas and we're going to talk about how we can use this visualization in order to speed up you becoming financially independent. Okay. So speed up your job income. So this is one of the sources. I just did a blow up of the spreadsheet here. This is one of your sources from your job income. Shows that how much you're making from your job, and then how much you're actually investing from your job. So you have saved to invest. Part of the money, in some cases, you have a company match where the company says to you, "Look, if you invest, you know, one or two percent of your income, we will match that dollar for dollar. So if you invest one percent, we will automatically add a dollar to well add one percent to it, and so we'll, you'll end up investing two percent total. One percent provided by you, one percent from a company match." And so you want to try to maximize that if you can and do the company match part. Sometimes you'll take money outside of that company match. Just that like company may say, look, we're only willing to go up to 3% with that. So you do your 3% uh, investment. Your company matches it 3% as an example. And then any additional money, you know, 2% more or 5% more, or whatever you're investing from your job, you want to go and take that money. And that is the no match, the, the money that you're investing from your job that is not matched by the company to do that. And then any money here you're putting in social security, you can kind of just keep track of that mentally for yourself. So how do you speed up the job income? Well, increase your job income, like decide to earn more, get a, get a job where they do a match or don't do a match uh, or, or do one where they do do a match or they have some type of you know stock options or something like that. Not just your regular job either I'm talking about. I'm also talking about a side hustle or two. Uh, for example, maybe you decide to go and do house hacking where you go and you buy a property where you could rent out part of the property while you're living in it. Um, as another example for doing that. Or maybe you decide to start a business part-time in order to generate more income coming in and you do that. So not just your regular job, maybe other jobs as well. If you're really trying to speed things up, that is a possibility for you. Uh, If you're trying to speed things up using job income, make sure you maximize that company match so that you get some money Although there are some weird things. I didn't plan on going to a lot of detail on this, but sometimes your company match requires that you put money into certain type of accounts where you may not be able to access them until much later. And so realize that if you're trying to speed things up and become financially dependent, maximizing money in your company match may be money that you can't use right away. And so you'll sort of have to like keep that off in the distance until you're able to qualify for it at age 65 or whatever it is that the rules are for you. Um, so you want to increase your company match or maximize your company match. You may want to increase any money that you're investing on your own outside the company match. And if you're relying on Social Security and you have control over how much you take Social Security, like you're the business owner and have some control over wages versus profits, then minimizing Social Security may be faster. But at the cost of the amount of Social Security benefit later, which may be less, maybe more risky or less conservative if something goes wrong with the investments you're making outside of the social security option. Okay, so just realize that. All right, so that's the first one. We talked about income. Now let's talk about properties. So in my mind, I've grouped properties into three primary groups because we really do look at properties in three distinct ways. First one is really obvious one. The owner-occupant properties. These are properties that you live in. And sometimes there's a little bit of crossover. Like if you're doing house hacking, you bought a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex and you're living in one of the units and you're renting out the others, or maybe you're just doing roommates, you bought a a nice single family home and you're living in the single family home and you're renting out a couple of the bedrooms or you're renting out an RV space in the backyard or whatever you're doing, or maybe you bought the the triplex and you're renting out roommates in the room and the one you're living in, and then you have like two other rental units that you're renting out because complete separate units. Like if you're doing that, that's totally fine too. But for the most part, I'm talking about the properties that you're deciding to live in. And most of the time, we're not getting any type of cash flow. We're cash flow from depreciation from that, and we're usually not taking advantage of the appreciation, the property value going up, or the fact that we're paying down on the loans, because that really doesn't count until you pay the property off, and it totally reduces your housing expense. So, And I'll go into that in a lot of detail in other classes, but usually that does not contribute towards you being financially independent unless you take that property and you're using it like we're going to use other properties here in a minute as sort of like a rocket booster in order to gain some equity, have the property value go up, pay down your debt, and then you eventually sell that property. Or you take the property that you lived in for a year two or three or four or five and you then convert it to a rental. And in those cases, you could use the assets you're committed there. But if you're just keeping them as an owner-occupant, we don't really use those a lot as like returns coming out of there that we could reinvest. Okay, so it really would need to move from being an owner-occupant property to some type of investment property or something like that, or selling it, which I didn't show in here, although I did make a note. You know, not showing could sell owner-occupant properties for tax-advantaged capital gains. And there are some tax advantages of selling an owner-occupant property for your primary. Okay, so the first group was that owner-occupant properties. The next two groups are properties, investment properties that you buy that you intend to keep forever for cash flow, And then the next group is investor properties that you buy that you intend to sell capital gains. Here's the general idea. There are some properties, rental properties, that you plan on buying, that you plan on keeping in your portfolio through retirement, and you plan on just having those puppies cash flow and generate cash flow to you that you intend to live on. That's one type of property. Those are the keeper cash flow properties. There are other properties that we're buying that maybe the cash flow isn't great, or maybe the property is not one you want to keep in your portfolio for a long period of time. But it is a property that you intend to buy because the return on it is so attractive. And it's a property that you intend to keep maybe for you know a month or two and then quickly flip. Or maybe you want to keep it for six months or a year or five years or 10 years or 20 years. Or until you get to the point where you have enough properties, enough equity in them that you could sell off the ones that you planned on selling and use the proceeds in order to pay off the ones that you want to keep for cash flow. So there are some properties though that we plan to sell for capital gains. And so those are a separate group. The ones where we plan to keep for cash flow, we're primarily focused in on the cash flow from those, although you can access the appreciation of debt paydown uh, via some refinancing or um, doing a HELOC on those. The other ones, we may get some cash flow and cash flow from depreciation while we're holding them, but really the intention of those is to capture the appreciation of the debt paydown from those and then use that money elsewhere, come out of the engine and invest somewhere else in the property. Okay, let me check my notes to make sure I cover what I wanted to do. Okay, so some properties you'll own or occupy, talk about that could still do house hacking, talked about getting roommates or buying a flex, triplex, or four plus, And that could be like a side hustle, right? The income you have coming in from doing a house hack is almost like getting a second job. If you think about it, right? I mean, if you went out and you got another job delivering pizzas and you earn $600 a month, isn't that sort of like, you know, renting out a bedroom or renting out a garage space or renting out an RV parking spot uh, on a property and getting another $600 a month? It's just, you're not doing as much manual labor in order to have someone else living in an RV space or renting out your garage or, you know, renting out a room in your property uh, and you're collecting money on that. So it's like a side hustle. It financially contributes 600 dollars to your income, just like another second job would. Okay. And maybe even some tax advantages of you renting out part of your property, as you'll probably get some cash flow and depreciation for the part of the property that you're renting. Okay. So we could still do house I can talk about that. Andor the nomad strategy, if you decided to do the owner of a property where you buy a property, As an owner-occupant, get owner-occupant financing, usually low or nothing down. You get owner-occupant interest rates, which are usually a little bit better than investor interest rates. You buy the property, you move in there, you have to live there for at least a year. It's a requirement of the lender that you stay there for at least a year. And then once you're done living in the property for a year, then you can convert that property to a rental. Buy another property as the owner-occupant, put another, you know, three and a half percent down or five percent down or whatever you're going to do. Then move into that property, live there for a year, and continue this property acquiring rental properties with little or nothing down as you continue to acquire each one, and then you move them into either keep for cash flow or sell for capital gains as you do those. So that's the nomad real estate strategy, where you buy a property, live there as an the owner-occupant for at least a year, then you convert it to a rental. The reason why we do at least a year is that is a requirement of the lender. You cannot buy a property as an owner-occupant, move in, and then move out before a year is up and convert it to a rental. It's called loan fraud. So do not do that. You have to stay there at least a year. It's a document you'll sign at closing. When you get your owner-occupant loan, it's why they will give you an owner-occupant low down payment loan option with a better interest rate. Is because you plan to owner-occupy it, and the requirement is a year. If If they change the rules and tell us it's two years, we'll start teaching two years. Right now, it's a year, so use a year. Okay, Talk to your lender about that. We talked about that. And some properties you want to keep as long-term rentals. That cash flow goes toward the goal of financial independence. Some properties you want to sell for capital gains. Some of the cash flow while waiting the sale where you'll capture and redeploy the equity you get from the property. Property goes up from appreciation, maybe some forced appreciation because you bought it at a discount or you did some work on it. And then property gets paid down a little bit on the loan. The difference between what you sell it for minus all your costs. And taxes and stuff like that minus what you owe on the property is going to be that money that you're going to be able to redeploy as part of your cash flow engine in order to do this. Similarly to what we just talked about with all the real estate, because real estate is a business, as I discussed, we're talking about businesses here. So you basically have a business where you're getting cash flow, your profit from being in the business. Now, this is... If you have a job, you put your job income up on top in the spreadsheet, and you get this business cash flow coming out as profit here later, eventually you may decide to stop working your job, but maybe you still own part of the business and you get profit from the business um, in the form of dividends or whatever else they're going to do there. And so you kind of keep this as there. So it allows you to kind of keep track of that there. Okay, now let's talk about safe withdrawal rate. So I'm about to go talk about the invested assets you've got and other things. And I want to mention what safe withdrawal rate is and kind of give you... A very brief definition of what this is. We could really do like a two-hour class on safe withdrawals. In fact, we probably could even do more. Okay, so we have safe withdrawals? SWR. It's how much you can, in quotes, safely withdraw from money that you have invested in things like stocks and bonds and likely not run out of money. There's no guarantee that you won't run out of money, but it's likely based on historical data. So a guy named Bill Benjamin did a bunch of math and he came up with this idea that, hey, how much money can I take out of? Um, you know, a client's portfolio where they are really unlikely to run out of money over a 30-year period or something like that. And so he looked at a bunch of different starting points um, using like um, stock historical stock market data, and he came up with this idea of a 4% rule. 4% rule basically says you could safely withdraw 4% of the amount that you start with, and you are very low probability likely to run out of money using historical data. Who knows what the future will bring, but usually the future looks similar enough to the past where he's saying, okay, look, based on historical data, 4%, most of the time we can get away with doing that. In some cases, we actually end up running out of money over a 30-year period, but 4% seems pretty safe to do. Then the Trinity study came out. There's three professors from Trinity University, Philip L. Cooley, Carl M. Hubbard, and Daniel T. Walls. Um, And if you want to read the Trinity study, you can go read it at refp.info forward slash Trinity. It'll take you right to the PDF. You can go read the whole thing. But they did a whole bunch of analysis on the same problem. And they they basically determined, you know, if you have a 90% stock portfolio or 10% stock or 10% bonds or 80-20 or 70-30 or whatever it is, they ran through a whole bunch of different variations. And they published how many how many times of the different starting years did people actually run out of money doing this? And they showed their results. So you can go look at all this and do it. So some people will use this at if you've ever heard someone say, you know, I'm using the 4% rule or the 4% safe withdrawal rate. It means that if you have a million dollars invested, you can withdraw $40,000 per year and you are not likely to run out of money. It's still possible, but you're not likely to run out of money if you've got that million dollars invested in stocks and bonds. In uh, the simplest version of this, and there's lots of variations, lots of discussions about it, but in the simplest version, the $40,000 a year increases by inflation each year. So it's 40,000 year one, the next year might be you know, 40,000 plus 3% or something like that. And so you can go look at those numbers and see over time. Now, to be crystal clear, this explicitly excludes all real estate and business equity. So you can't say, I've got $2 million worth of real estate equity, and I'm cash flowing you know, $2,000 a month for that. And they go over here on the other side and say, well, then I have $2 million of real estate equity and the million dollars in stocks and bonds. And so I've really got $3 million that I could use with a 4% state withdrawal rate. That is not the case. That is definitely not true. You can only use the million dollars you have invested in stocks and bonds with this safe withdrawal rate idea. You cannot use the real estate equity as well. It's like double dipping. You're already getting a return on that $2 million of real estate equity. That's the cash flow that you're getting on the rental properties, as an example. Okay. So you cannot use real estate equity as like part of your safe withdrawal rate. If you liquidate the properties, you sell them, you pay the taxes on them, you pay any expenses of doing the transactions, you know, closing costs and all that other stuff. You could take the money and then invest in stocks and bonds or whatever else you want to do and then use your safe withdrawal rate with that. But that's not what we're talking about here, okay? We're really talking about money you've got invested in stocks and bonds, not the equity in your properties. Okay. Now that I've explained safe withdrawal rate, now we're looking at the three different types of accounts you have where you have assets invested in them. And these are usually things like stocks and bonds times whatever your safe withdrawal rate. So there's money that you could have in a taxable account. And a taxable account is money that you pay taxes in order to get the money. It's like from your job. And then you're going to pay taxes on any gains you have from those investments. So you pay taxes when you earn the money. Then this is an after-tax investment. And then once the money gains stuff, you know, goes up in value or it's throwing off dividends or whatever, then you're paying taxes on that as you go. That's what your taxable account money is. For example, investing money you earn and pay tax on already in a brokerage account. So you go decide you're going to go invest, you're going to trade options, you're going to do whatever you're going to do there. That is money that you most of the time be doing in some type of taxable account, taxable brokerage account. There's another type of account called a tax deferred account. You can have assets in these tax deferred accounts. It's money you invested before paying taxes on it but you need to pay taxes on it when you withdraw it. So it's money that the government will say to you, hey, listen, you can take a certain amount of your income and you can set it aside to invest in these tax-deferred accounts. You don't pay taxes on the money that you earn while you do it, but you are going to pay taxes on it when it comes out. And so they want you to grow that, make it a much larger dollar amount, and then pay taxes on the larger dollar amount when it comes out. An example of this would be a traditional IRA, okay? So that's another example of a tax-deferred account. And then you could have... Uh, assets in tax-free accounts. This is uh, money where you pay taxes on it as you earned it, but then you do not pay taxes on it when you withdraw it. So you can put it into a certain type of account, let it grow. You pay taxes on it before you put it in. And then once you actually have it grow, then as you pull it out, you do not pay taxes on that at all. An example of this would be like a Roth IRA. Okay, So you could take money that you're earning in your engine and you could decide to put it into your taxable account pay taxes on the money, invest it, and then pay taxes on it as you come out. You can decide to take the money you have, uh, not pay taxes on it up front, defer the taxes to later, invest your money, and then take, pay taxes when you get it out. Or you could pay taxes on money, invest it, and then when you pull it out, it's tax-free. Okay, So those are the three types of options. You have an account, kind of like a, a line item for each one of those here. And then you multiply that by whatever your safe withdrawal rate is to find out how much money you could take out of there. Now, while you're Actively growing your portfolio, you're not taking out money to live on or anything. You can just let these grow, right? You put money in and let them grow, and not actually do a safe withdrawal right now. But later on, when you start pulling money out, there you may want to have money coming out of this. And then another one here is annuities. How much you bought in annuities? That you have the value of the annuities here, and then the annuity payout rate. You can calculate how much you're actually pulling out of there when you do the annuities. Okay. So besides earning more money from your job, from side hustles, from starting businesses and reducing your expenses, your personal expenses, your business expenses, including taxes on both your personal and business expenses. So like, how can you go ahead and save more money by earning more and spending less, which are really, really important, okay? Like, this is not like a trivial thing, but besides those, how mm-hmm. else can we speed up financial independence? Well, it's really about how what you do with the money you've got coming from your assets. Like how we go and deploy the things that are coming out of the engine, the sources of the money that you have to invest. You know, when we talk about the engine, it's the money in, all the money that you've got that you're investing in your assets. Then what happens when you get returns? And what do you do with all this money coming out? Sure, there's job stuff where you're getting some money and you're saving it like there. But really, what are you going to do with like cash coming out of your businesses and the, um, the money coming out from like your properties growing in value if you decide to do a refi or HELOC or whatever? Or if you decide to take money and you sell a property uh, or doing all that or any money coming from your business or the safe withdrawal rate money you've got coming out. Like, what are you doing with all of this money? You're like thinking about like, where do I deploy it and how do I do it? So we're really focused on the sources of money out all these little green letters and boxes there. So let's talk about the money to invest. What do we do with this money to speed up financial independence? These are all the different things that we have money coming from so the job you've got some money coming in when you're when the, the company matches your money the money that you're saving that the company does not match um, any of the cash flow properties that you own um, you can decide to collect money now in the form of cash flow and then cash flow from depreciation if you decide to pull money out of those properties you're primarily keeping for cash flow like you do a cash out refi where you do a heloc and then if you have properties that you're keeping primarily to sell for capital gains you might get a little bit of cash now in the form of cash flow and cash flow from depreciation. But then if you sell the property, there are certain proceeds you can get where you pay the taxes on it and you can invest it in whatever you want, or you could decide to defer your taxes, do a 1031 exchange, and then reinvest that money in more rental properties, like like-kind investments. So you could do that. Or if you decide instead of selling the property right away, you can access the equity you have in those properties with a loan temporarily and do a cash-out refinance or a HELOC, just like we did with the ones where we were keeping for cash flow. And then the business income you've got there, you can use the cash flow from owner profits then these invested assets, times your safe withdrawal rates. We've got the tax withdrawals, tax deferred withdrawals, and then tax free withdrawals from those three different sources, your annuities, your social security, and your pension. So those are the different sources of money to invest that we've got there. So what do we invest in? Like we take all this money out from all those different sources and like how do we go and speed things up and what do we reinvest in? And part of it is this choice. It's the choice of, okay, we've got all these sources of money that we just went over. Where are we going to put that? How do we improve it? And part of that is taking all this money out that we see, some of them you're going to be deferring for later. Like You're not going to be necessarily taking money out of you know, the tax withdrawal account or whatever, unless you're going to say, hey, I'm, I'm saving up money in this until I get to $100,000 and I'm taking $100,000 and I'm going to use this down payment in order to buy a property. So you may be doing stuff like that, but sometimes it's like you're holding for a little while until your engine grows and the return grows in that. Then you're going to take money from there and you're going to move it up somewhere else. Okay. So what are we going to reinvest in? Well, here are the options, right? I've tried to simplify it down and say, you know, these are really the choices we're looking at. Number one, we can invest in more owner-occupant properties. We can either put up money for down payments and buy another owner-occupant property. Maybe we sell one, use some of the proceeds and reinvest in that. Or maybe we sell one, take some of the money, buy an investment property, take less of the proceeds and go buy an owner-occupant property. But we take some and we use it for down payments to buy an owner-occupant property. Or- we could pay down on mortgages and earn a return from having less than we owe on the property. So if we have an 8% mortgage, which is what they are about the time that I'm recording this. You could take money. You can take money from something else you've got on the other side and reinvest it by paying down an 8% mortgage. What do you earn as a return by paying down an 8% mortgage? It's not a trick question. 8%. That's exactly right. So if you're going to go buy, if you're going to go have a loan, you're going to pay it down, what you get as a return is the interest rate. So if you've got a 2.25% mortgage on a property because you got a really good mortgage you know, five years ago or three years ago, do you want to go take money that you could invest in stocks or bonds or CDs or more investment real estate or anything else and pay, and pay off a 2.25% mortgage and earn 2.25% in that money? There are some cases where you might want to do that, but for the most part, you probably do not want to. You probably want to take that money and invest in something that's going to get you a higher return. But if you've got a mortgage that's at 8%, might not be the worst thing to do with all of your money, right? Like not to take all of it, but some of your money, take it and invest in something like that. Okay, so owner-occupant properties, you can either use it more for down payments to buy more of those, or you can pay down loans on your owner-occupant properties to do that. Another thing is you can keep for cash flow properties, the properties that you intend to keep for cash flow, you could use for down payments to buy more properties that you intend to keep forever and cash flow them into retirement. And you, or you could either use down payments for that, or you could pay down mortgages on those. And then finally, for the property group, you could sell for the, the properties that are sell for capital gains, the ones that you intend to sell at some point in the future. Like get a really good return early on, and then as your equity builds up, you want to sell that thing off. Take the equity, redeploy it into something that's going to get a higher return, which we'll talk about here in a moment. You could use that for down payments in those, or you could pay down the mortgages. So really, it's the three different property types. We can use down payments, or we could pay down the mortgages. Those are the two primary things. No, I guess there's something else I didn't add in here, which I probably should add to the spreadsheet, because there are things that you can do in order to um, invest in, and that is improve the property. You could go and improve the property and make your cash flow better. So it's really not paying down the loans. It's really not a down payment, but it's improved property. So yeah, we could go ahead and add that. Maybe I'll make a note. See, teach a new class with a new spreadsheet. You get to add new things. Um, improved property. So hopefully I'll remember to go look at this sheet of paper and I'll add that to the list. Okay, so those are really the things you can do to properties. Or you can do your businesses. You can do down payments. You can do uh, pay down loans, or you can also probably improve your business. I should add that as well too. Maybe make a note. improve business. And then buy assets, you could go take money and invest it in your taxable account. Um, if you qualify for like from an income standpoint, you could use it in your tax deferred account or you could invest in a tax-free account. There are some qualifications and limitations for doing the tax deferred and tax-free. So uh, just realize that you might be limited in what you can do that. Or finally, you could buy annuities. But that's really all we're talking about. These are all the choices we have of the money that we've coming out from our job and all these other investments we have, we could take that money. And what are we really going to do? We're going to put it back at the beginning and we're going to reinvest in something. And now what we want to look at is what are the returns we're earning on all of these and then make a decision. And I'm not going to go into returns today because we cover that in a lot of other classes, Uh, but maybe I will do a separate class where I just bring all the returns in and I just do a summary class looking at the returns you can earn from different things we've got going on here. But part of this decision-making process, how do you speed things up is being smart about where you're taking money from in your engine and what you're putting it into to make sure that the returns you're earning on those make sense for you for getting you where you want to be. Okay, so now that we talked about really like the engine and how it all works, let's now look at the three primary groups for how we can speed this up. Number one, we can increase savings. Number two, we can increase the returns. And number three, we can reallocate assets. So increase savings, increase your income or all the other job type stuff you've got there, side hustles, whatever you've got going there. Number two, decrease expenses. So make sure that you're living frugally, that you are, um, you know, not paying a lot in, in taxes on uh, things like that. Uh, you can also pay off properties, either owner off own properties where you're living in and reduce your living expenses that way, or on investment properties to reduce your expenses and improve cash flow. So those are all part of like the increased savings idea of doing things. Or you could utilize more of that company match if available. If you're only doing 1% and the company will match you up to 3%, maybe you should take advantage of a 100% return when you do the company match. If you invest 1%, they'll match your 1%. You just earn 100% return in that first year by doing that. And then maybe you look at how you can get it back out if you want to decide to do that. But you know, utilize more company match if it's available for you um, as a way to increase your savings. Sorry, I got to grab a drink. All right. Number two, increase returns. Change the investments for your investable assets. We've got those you know, tax, uh, you know, taxable accounts, tax-deferred accounts, or tax-free accounts. Change where you're investing. And maybe you were investing in a money market account there. Maybe you're investing in CDs. Maybe you're investing in bonds. Maybe you're investing in stocks. Decide to invest in something else that has a better return. Realize that there may be additional risk in doing that. So you got to weigh those, but change what you're investing in to improve your returns. And that could speed up how fast you're able to do it. You, know, you could go from investing in stocks to becoming a self directed IRA and then go use that to invest in real estate as an example of a way to speed up your financial independence. Number two, the second part of this number two part of increased returns, improved cash flow. I'm not going to, there's no way I can go through and call the improved cash flow. I've got entire courses on how to go do this. Go check out the cash flow inferno classes where we talk about this. Um, it's as of right now, at least you can access it for free. It's a bonus refp.info forward slash cfi cash flow inferno cfi refp.info cfi and in there we have the 88 strategies for improving cash flow and rental properties that's all part of like my concepts of the lowest monthly payment guarantee how to minimize all the expenses when you're buying properties both owner occupant and rental properties and then the maximum cash flow guarantee all the different ways and strategies we have to improve cash flow and income you're earning on those rental properties that you have and combine both those together and it means that you're going to maximize and improve your cash flow. Do that to make sure that you're getting the most cash flow that you can to speed up this process and to be financially independent sooner. Another way to increase returns is find better deals. And I've kind of broken it down into two primary areas. Number one, for the properties that you plan to keep for cash flow, look for better cash flowing properties. Maybe that means going to another market. Maybe that means being really patient. Maybe that means making very aggressive offers, whatever it means. Or maybe it means changing your strategy you know, instead of going for a long-term rental approach. Maybe it means going for short-term rentals or student rentals or you know, whatever you're doing there. Realize that sometimes by changing your strategy, you might be moving more toward that kind of like job source. You start thinking to yourself, okay, I'll do short-term rentals. And if you don't have a lot of team built in place in order to help you manage the short-term rentals, maybe that starts looking like you doing work and doing a job. And if you're trying to be financially dependent, then it's harder for you to not work and also manage short-term rentals unless you have a team in place to kind of do that. So just kind of a warning about that one. Or a better deal example with properties that you're going to plan to sell for capital gains, get bigger discounts or find properties that you can get higher appreciation and you can able to make those... Properties produce better returns for you that you plan on holding for a month, two months, three months, six months, a year, five years, 10 years, whatever it is, before you get enough equity built up that you can then sell them, pay the costs associated with selling them, and then redeploy that equity into other investments. That's like part of the engine. And we'll talk about this. I think it's on the next slide about why you may want to go do stuff like that. And then increase leverage. Increasing leverage has to do with the fact that when you buy rental properties in particular, The return on your rental properties tends to go down the longer you hold it. The returns tend to go down because the equity in your property builds up. The property tends to go up in value. You tend to pay down on the loan. So the amount of money you have tied up in the property tends to get bigger, tends to increase. And so the amount of money you're earning from property value going up and the tax benefits and the cash flow and paying down the loan, all those numbers, while they may be growing, they're growing slower than the amount of equity in your property is growing. And so the return you're earning on the equity you have in the deal, your overall return that you're earning on equity actually goes down the longer you hold the property. And so if you took that money and you let it You kind of like capitalize on the really high return you earn early on. And then as that equity grows and the return starts to dip off, you redeploy that equity into something else. You could leverage up your returns and earn better returns on the money you have invested. And so there's two ways to really do that. You can refinance, pull out the equity, and redeploy it. Or you could sell the property, pay all the costs associated with that. And then redeploy the equity and improve your returns that way. And it's based on this idea, this return on equity idea. And I've taught separate classes on this. And I'm not going to have time to go into a ridiculous amount of detail. But this is this is legit. This is like a phenomenon that is true. You buy a property and you end up earning a good amount of appreciation, a good amount of debt pay down, a good amount of cash flow from depreciation, and you know, usually relatively low cash flow at the beginning, and that tends to improve over time. But because you have very small equity and you bought it, maybe you bought a property with only 5% down as a nomad. Maybe you put 20% down as an investor or 25% down as an investor, but you have this small amount of equity that's earning these returns from appreciation, debt pay down, cash flow and cash flow from depreciation. So you've got all these returns there. But as your equity grows, as the property value goes up, as you pay down the loan, the amount of equity you have grows. And even though appreciation goes up over time, your debt pay down goes up over time a little bit, your cash flow tends to improve over time and your cash flow from depreciation stays the same because it's pretty much fixed unless you decide to do some accelerated depreciation, but even though that one stays static, the amount of equity you have grows faster than the return on all these other ones so that over time, the return you're earning on the equity you have in that property is actually decreasing. And eventually, once your debt paid, once you pay off the loan, your debt paid one goes away, and you no longer have any return from debt paid out. And eventually your cash flow from depreciation goes away because you can only depreciate residential properties over 27 and a half years. And so that eventually goes to zero. So what you're left with is just unleveraged, because it's no longer leveraged, appreciation rate, which might be 3%, and then your unleveraged um, cash flow return, which might be cap rate, which is usually somewhere between five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10%, depending on what property you're buying, what part of the country, and all sorts of other variables. But maybe 5%, you know, as on the low end. So 5% plus 3% is 8%. So even though you might be earning, you know, 35% return when you first buy the property, like if you think about return on equity, that's decreasing every year. So eventually when the property is paid off, you're about 8% return on your money. So if you decide, look, Anytime my investment properties that I own, anytime their return drops below some number, some threshold you hit, whatever that is, 20% or 15% or 10%, you could say, look, I'm gonna sell this property and re-leverage up. I'm gonna take the money, I'm gonna pay the taxes, I'm gonna pay the capital gains tax, I'm gonna pay the depreciation recapture tax, I'm gonna, you know, pay the real estate commission to get out of it, I'm gonna pay the closing costs, and I'm gonna take whatever's left over, which is what we call true net equity. That's the that's the amount you have left over after all those expenses I just named. And you're going to take that money and you're going to go buy another asset, whether that's any of those other assets we just talked about, down payments, paying down loans, uh, you know, investable assets, some with jewelry, buying annuities, you know, whatever you're doing there or or like any of the taxable, non-taxable, tax deferred, you know, tax free, all those different things. You decide what to take this money from and invest in there. And if you want to save some of your money on the sale and you want to do a 1031 tax deferred exchange. You can delay having to pay capital gains and depreciation recapture. You're still gonna need to pay the real estate transaction costs and closing costs, whatever those are, unless you're able to negotiate having your buyer pay them for you when you go and do this. But in most cases, you're gonna pay those and then you can take that a much larger chunk, but you're limited in what you can reinvest that in when you do that. Has to be other real estate, like-kind real estate, not owner-occupant stuff, okay? So this idea of return on equity declining over time is real. It's a real phenomenon. And so we, we, a lot of times, investors will look at this, they'll be like, look, I would like to work around this. I would like to not have this happen. However, other real estate investor folks look at this as a natural, organic de-risking of the portfolio over time. Because as you pay down the loan, it becomes less risky. You owe less on the asset. You're kind of like, resiliency for price declines goes up and your resiliency for rent declines goes up. You know, the rent can come down and you'll still have positive cash flow. The price can come down and you'll still have positive equity. So this is a natural organic way to de-risk your portfolio. But it also typically means that you're getting less of a return on your asset over time. And if you're trying to speed things up and really optimize this, you may choose to see this as a hindrance and say, I want to address this. I don't want to see my return go from 35% all the way down to 8%. I want to see it go from 35% down to 20. At 20, I want to go reinvest, re-leverage up and go buy another asset or two that has 35% return. Maybe you buy a bigger property, or maybe you buy two properties that are a little bit smaller or about the same size and you go and you redeploy this money, or maybe you take the money and you go buy stocks or annuities or whatever you want to do, but you change it in order to get a better or different or, you know, kind of like other return than what you're doing here, okay? And so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about this Kind of like refi and redeploy equity, sell and redeploy equity in order to increase leverage, because you're usually increasing leverage to do that. Or number three, remember we talked about the three options here increase savings, increase returns, which we just covered, and now reallocate assets. Number three. So change the investments for the investable assets. So we have this before the other one, but if you were investing in bonds, maybe you decide to change it to invest in stocks. Maybe if you were investing in stocks, maybe you decide you want to go invest in options, or maybe you want to take it and invest in um, you know, treasuries or, or bonds or whatever. You could change what you're investing in in order to optimize for return, but realize that does change the risk characteristics of what you're investing in. You go from bonds uh, to stocks, it's changing. the asset classes, The underlying asset class you're investing in is different, okay? Or you could utilize some of our like deal alchemy strategies. Um, if you've kind of not seen that course, it's another bonus course. Rep.info uh, forward slash rep forward slash alchemy. And if you go there, there's a whole bunch of stuff about how do you move returns from one cod- one quadrant to the other. So if you're really concerned about earning money in that cash flow quadrant instead of appreciation and debt pay down, you can decide to do things with your asset in order to work on maximizing cash flow. For example you may refi some of your properties to have enough money come out of those to pay off other properties to improve your cash flow sometimes it just works out that you have enough equity in your properties that it's spread out in a really un- unusual way that is limiting how much cash flow you can produce and it might be better for you to refinance you know two properties and then use those proceeds to pay off one or pay off two and that that would actually improve cash flow by a lot more than just keeping your properties the way that they were and letting them all continue to pay off organically. Or another version of this is, let's say you have, let's say over the next you know, X number of years, you acquire 10 properties. And then once you have the 10 properties, you wait until you get to the point where you could sell off five of them and then, pay, and then pay off, use the proceeds from selling off five of them to pay off completely the loans on the other five. So you just hold the properties, as long as it takes for you to get to the point where you sell off a portion of them, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, seven, whatever it takes. And then you pay off the remaining properties that you keep. So now that you have one, two, three, four, five, three and clear properties, and no longer 10 properties that all were leveraged. And that could be a way for you to achieve financial independence and really speed things up. You buy more properties than you need. Let them grow. These are all, you know, a certain number of them you're setting aside as kind of like sell for capital gains, you're, you're kind of deciding that those are going to be sell for capital gains properties. You let them appreciate, you let the loan pay down. You're not overly concerned about how much cash flow producing because you're not going to keep them for cash flow. You're really looking at what's the overall return I'm getting. You know, If it's getting a you know, 30% or 40% or 50% return, especially early on before that return on equity curve drops off, then once you get to the point where those things have grown enough, then you go and you sell those, you take the proceeds and you use it to pay off properties that you plan to keep in your portfolio forever. Or maybe you have the 10 rental properties that you let grow for a period of time, you solve all of them, and then you invest in stocks or bonds and use the safe withdrawal or you solve all of them and you buy annuities or whatever your strategy is. These could all be different variations on ways to speed things up because you could be maximizing the return you're getting on equity. You're buying these properties and really taking advantage of this very high return you see on leveraged real estate early on. There's some risk associated with that, you know, having putting 20% down or 5% down the property, there's definitely a risk of having leveraged real estate, but you take advantage of these high returns you have. Then once the return starts tapering off and getting more reasonable, you know, getting lower to to kind of what a, uh, you know, comparable returns might be in the stock market or the bond market or whatever it is, then you can go take this money and you could redeploy it into something that you get better or different types of returns, depending on what you're looking for at the time. And so those are the two ideas, refi them to pay off some properties or business, or sell them to pay off some properties or business to do that or invest in something else. You'll use the, the refire the sale to invest in whatever assets. Now, if we go back to our engine, it's really like taking money out of these ones where you sell and you either pay taxes on it or you do 1031 to change, depending on what you're doing here. In most cases, you're probably going to be paying taxes. Then you're taking this money and you're using it on the spreadsheet in order to reinvest in something else, whether that's paying off loans improving the property, paying off a business or buying a business or whatever you plan on doing, investing in taxable stuff, buying annuities, but it's taking that money and using it there. And that's what we're trying to do visually. Okay. Whisper speed. So sometimes, often I would say, increasing speed results in increasing risk. So because we re-leveraged up or because we are seeking these higher returns, sometimes we're doing that and we're increasing our risk. For example, increasing leverage on your properties to improve your return on equity almost always increases risk right if you go re-leverage up you take these assets you take one property that's the equity is kind of growing you take that you sell it and you take that and you buy two more properties or a bigger property where you only put you know 20% down or 25% down when you had 50% of equity you're you're likely increasing risk and i've got a whole series of classes coming on this we're going to use expected value to really drill down and understand how you could still have a better expected value you're like you're you're um the, the results you're expecting is much more likely to happen, but there's a, also an increased likelihood for you to have a more significant failure. That's what we're going to look at when we talk about expected value. That's a totally different class. That was the, that was the class I told you I didn't have time to teach, but I'm going to teach another version of it. Okay, so for example, increasing leverage talked about this, always increase. Many real estate investors will choose to de-risk the closer they get to their fire date, the financial independence retire early date. Because as you get a much larger, larger asset base, you know, having variations in that could impact. If you needed $3 million in order to be considered financially independent and you're getting closer to your deadline of when you want to actually be retired, then you know, if you have a portfolio that you know, could easily go up 10% or down 10% in value, and all of a sudden you see as you approach your date, the portfolio drops 10% and you need that 3 million and you only have 2.7 now, that's problematic. And so the closer you get to the date where you actually want to be financially independent and stop working, the less risky you want it to be, unless you're way above it, right? Unless you're like, okay, I need 3 million. I'm at 7 million. I don't need to de-risk that much at that point. But if you're close, then that's one of the more dangerous times. This is a retirement date risk. This is from Michael Kitsis talks about the peak impact of portfolio size effect, right as you're entering the period where you're going to stop working here, that, that this time period, right before you hit your financial independence, retire early date, that is one of the more dangerous times. And then right after that, once you retire, is one of the most dangerous times you have for what's called a sequence of returns risk, which we talked about in other classes and I'm sure I'll talk about it again, but I don't have time to go through it right now. If you want to go read Michael Kitsis' article about this whole idea and it's not real estate specific. It's more like stock market stuff. You can go to refp.info forward slash red zone, R E D Z O N E, and you will see Michael Kitsis explain this um, phenomenon to financial advisors. Um, good stuff. Good stuff for you to dig into if you're interested in this. But you'll see why it's most risky right before your financial independence date and then right after with sequence return risk. They're slightly different risks, but they're related because it's based on your portfolio size, your largest portfolio size. You're most at risk for that. Okay. So in conclusion, There are many choices you can make to speed up your journey to financial independence. And hopefully you're just starting to understand how this whole engine thing works. So all the different sources of money you got coming out, then what do we take that money and what do we do with it? What do we kind of move it back around to get it going in? And then when it goes in, it kind of comes out. And that's why it's an engine. It keeps repeating and it keeps growing with your returns there. So the choices you make about what you're taking with the money coming out and what you're putting it back into... Matter and they can really impact the speed at which you're able to achieve financial benefits. Some require more sacrifice and discipline to implement. Reducing your expenses, saving more, getting a different job, doing side hustles—that's more work. It's more sacrifice, more discipline to implement. But some of them are mere distinctions at points of decision. Hey, and I'm going to take this money coming out of here. I'm going to invest it in this instead of this, and that could make a major difference. You know, taking your money and paying off a 2.25 percent mortgage versus paying off an 8 percent mortgage could make a big difference. And it's really no extra work for you as to what you want to do. It's just like deciding I'm going to do this instead of this. And so ideally we get this little visual and I'll create some more tools around this so you can see like what the expected returns are. Maybe you put in your own numbers and you could decide where you're going to take money out of to kind of optimize and approve and your, your kind of like speed to financial independence, but also weighing in the risks of doing so as well. Okay. Speaking of risk, some of these ideas will reduce risk. Taking money and paying off loans with them probably reduces risk overall, provided you have enough reserves. You don't want to go risk your reserves to kind of pay off a property a little faster. Other choices will increase risk. Selling off properties and then re-leveraging up and only putting 5% down or 15% down or 20% down or 25% down when you had 50, 70% of equity in your property before that, that's going to increase risk for you. You're going to actually have like a significant uptick in a lot of the different ways that we measure risk. For real estate investors, the decline you see from return on equity is a legit phenomenon. It does happen. So be aware that most of the time when you buy a real estate investment, the best return you're getting is really early on when you're most leveraged, okay? Even if it's not the best cash flow. And organically over time, what tends to happen is your cash flow improves but all of your other returns drop off, okay? So that tends to be what's going on in your investment. So if you're really trying to maximize returns, especially if you've got some of those properties allocated for sell for equity or sell for capital gains, then a lot of times your overall return is going to be much lower the longer you wait on that. So that, re- that decline from the return on equity curve is legit and something that some people will use naturally in their favor to organically de-risk their portfolio as they get older, as their portfolio ages. Some people are like, I want rocket booster returns all the time So I want to use these kind of sell for equity properties or sell to refine or refi to get at my equity kind of process and redo those things to really maximize the return on equity numbers at the cost of increasing risk. And we'll look at those here when we do a lot of the expected value stuff in future classes uh, to do that. Hope you enjoyed today's class. Hopefully it's not too long. Uh, Have a great day, everybody. This has been James Orr. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates.